Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labour. For the children of the desolate one will be more than than of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Right, we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians and um, It's pretty much really concentrating on the one single message about being saved by grace and not having to work by the law. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about how the scriptures reveal Christ and and even the Old Testament reveals Christ. And we're going to talk about how to understand the Bible and, and how different ways of interpreting the Bible, well, some of them um, have a lot of integrity and otherwise don't have a lot of integrity at all and can be quite misleading. So throughout this letter, Paul has been upholding the Old Testament covenant of Abraham, um, which was made right back in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis. And he's been helping us to understand that the covenant that God had with Abraham was a covenant of promise. It was a covenant of faith. Um, It didn't depend on works. It didn't depend on law. It was a covenant of faith. And the covenant of the law came at a, a much later date when Moses was given the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And this covenant with Abraham, it was actually looking forward to Jesus Christ. You see, it was through Jesus that all the nations were going to be blessed. That was the promise that that God had given to Abraham, that it would be through him that all of the nations would be blessed, but that meant that it was through Jesus. And over the last nearly four chapters, Paul has been very clearly making his case from Scripture. But now, Paul does something really strange. And I'm going to be quite upfront with you. If the preacher of the church that I was attending had a regular practice of interpreting the scripture in the way that Paul does with these few verses, I'm pretty sure I'd find another church to go to. Uh, Because this is not 
a normal way of interpreting scripture and it could be open to terrible abuses. And I think Paul knows this because he's already very clearly made his case from the scripture already and, and he's been interpreting scripture in a very normal way with a great deal of integrity. And also Paul very rarely uses this second method to interpret scripture. And I'll explain that a bit more shortly, but, but it's probably going to be good for us to have a bit of a reminder of what happened with Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, and the two boys. God had promised Abraham that he was going to be the father of many nations, of a great nation. And, and the trouble was, Abraham was getting really old, and he didn't have any kids yet. And so his wife, Sarah, came up with a cunning plan that she would give her slave girl, Hagar, to Abraham and he could sleep with her and get her pregnant and he could have a child in that way. Very understanding wife, Sarah, isn't she? What could possibly go wrong? Well, sure enough, Abraham got Hagar pregnant. She bore a son and they called him Ishmael. But as soon as Hagar, the slave girl, realised that she was pregnant, she let the, her, her new sense of honour and importance go to her head. And she was, because she was able to give Abraham what he'd always wanted, and his, his wife, her mistress, uh, was unable to give him this, and that is a son. And so she started rubbing it into Sarah you know, and, and treating her with contempt. I can give him a son, you can't, no, 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 no. And as I said before, two wives, what could possibly go wrong? But then Sarah took it out on Abraham. This is your fault, Abraham, you know. And so Abraham says, well, you're Hagar's boss. You, you deal with her how you want to. And she did, quite harshly. And Hagar ran away. In his mercy, the Lord found Hagar out in the wilderness and said, it's all right, Hagar, uh, you go back to your mistress and submit to her. Your son, when he's born, uh, he'll have many descendants too. So she did. So Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. And it wasn't until Abraham was 100 years old that Sarah, at the age of 90, gave birth to Isaac. And this is the child that God had promised all those years earlier. Now, I get tired just thinking about that. I, I'd hate to think me in, in my early, early 50s, everybody, early 50s. Uh, imagine if I became a dad now. Actually, it probably wouldn't be too bad because with my current state of deafness, I think I'd sleep all night. Robin, not so good. Um, now... Reading from Genesis chapter 21, verse 8. And the child grew, this is Isaac, and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. And so she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac, and the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be displeased. 
because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah tells you to, sorry, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Right? So that's the story that in our Bible reading today, Paul interpreted that allegorically. What does that mean? Who's used the word allegorically in their normal everyday language in the last week? No one. No one. What it means, Paul's saying we can find a deeper meaning in this, right? So this is something that actually happened and we can read about it and we can know the history, but Paul's saying there's a deeper meaning in this and we can, we can see this meaning. He's saying that, that when this saga played out all those years ago, it could become a lesson for the Galatian church and for us thousands of years later that they don't have to keep the Old Testament religious law. Now, for me, as somebody who studies the Bible, and I suspect for you as well, that's a pretty long bow to draw to, to see that, that it's actually teaching this. Um, now, I don't know if you followed the allegory as it was read, so I'm just going to go through it briefly. So there's two sons, Ishmael, the son of the slave woman, and he's described as a child of the flesh. Why is he described as a child of the flesh? Because God had made a promise and they didn't believe that promise that he was going to provide a son. So they took matters into their own hands and produced this other child through Hagar. Uh, and then the second son was Isaac, the son of the free woman. And he's described as the child of promise. Now, I suspect, I don't know this, but I suspect... Uh, we've talked about the Judaizers in the last few messages. Uh, these are the people who had come into town in, in the Galatian towns there and started telling those Christians in Galatia that you, who, who were not Jews, right? So they were Gentiles. They, they, weren't, they didn't come from Jewish stock. And that these Judaizers had come into town and said, if you want to be a Christian, first you have to become a Jew. And start by getting circumcised and then start keeping all of the rules and regulations of the law, particularly the food laws is what they seem to be focusing on. Now, I suspect that these Judaizers were telling them that as Gentiles, they were on the outer, that they were descended from Ishmael, whereas the Jews were descended from Isaac. Right Now, I suspect this for two reasons. Firstly, that was common Jewish thought in the day, that the Gentiles were descended from Ishmael, while the Jews were descended from Isaac. And the second reason is because Paul manages to completely turn the tables on that view. You see, what Paul's saying here is that those who commit themselves to the law are the children of slavery. While those who depend on the promises of God, no matter what their nationality, are children of promise and of freedom. And to illustrate this, I've got two columns up there. Yep, a couple of columns. And my apologies to those who are listening to the, to the audio of this. You won't see those columns. 
On one side, we've got the slave woman, Hagar, who represents Mount Sinai, which is where the law of Moses is given, which corresponds then, Paul says, to the physical earthly city of Jerusalem. And then there's the free woman, Sarah, and she represents the Jerusalem above, the eternal city, right? So eternal life in glory with Christ. So therefore, those who bind themselves to live by the law, he's saying, are children of slavery. Whereas those who live by grace in Christ Jesus are children of the promise. You see what Paul's done here? He's effectively completely turned the tables on what would have been the general understanding in the day. Uh, and his great finale is in his mind it's all proved because in the early church, it's the Jews who are persecuting the Christians, just like Ishmael made fun of Isaac and Hagar treated Sarah with contempt. Right? So Paul was finding a deeper spiritual meaning in, a, in the historical biblical account of Abraham's family soap opera, right? So that's what we call allegory. Can you think of any other allegories that we find within Scripture? Probably the best known one is the historical biblical account of Jonah, right? So do you know the story of Jonah? When I say story, I'm not saying it's a made-up story. I believe it's history. Do you know the story of Jonah? God says to, to Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell them to repent. Uh, now, Nineveh was the most godless, evil, vile city. It, it was the archenemy of the people of God. And, and Jonah says, I'm not going there. And so he gets, instead of going to Nineveh, he gets onto a ship that's bound for Tarshish. And a big storm comes up. Jonah confesses, this is probably because of me. They throw him overboard. He gets swallowed by a big fish. He's in the belly of the big fish for three days. We're flying through this. Um, then he gets vomited up onto the beach, walks into the city and says to them, because of your evil, in 40 days, your city's going to be overthrown. And... The whole city, led by the king, repented. The king, as soon as he heard the message, as soon as the message got to him, he, he took off his royal robes. He repented in sackcloth and ashes. And the whole city repented. Success, or you would think. But what did Jonah do? Well, J Jonah heads off and has a bit of a sook. I want to die. I knew they'd repent, and I knew in your mercy that you wouldn't destroy them. And God says, hey, it's right for me to show mercy. These people are, are people, and I love my creation. Now, that's an amazing historical biblical account. But is there a deeper meaning in it? Do you know the deeper meaning in it? To the people in Israel at the time, it would just leap off the pages at them. You see, God had been warning Israel for centuries through his prophets. 
He had been sending prophet after prophet after prophet telling Israel, repent of your sin or else I'm going to destroy you. Repent of your sin or else I'm going to destroy you. Repent of your sin or else I'm going to destroy you. Did they listen? No. And here's Jonah, this reluctant prophet, this disobedient prophet, and he walks into the most despised city, their worst enemy, and he just tells them, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. He doesn't even tell them that there's a way of stopping it. He doesn't even tell them to repent. And as soon as they heard the message, they did what came naturally. Oh, no. We'd better repent. And they did. They repented in sackcloth and ashes, led by the king of the city. Now, you contrast that with what was going on in Israel at the time. The allegory, the deeper meaning for Israel was that the godless, the most godless city on earth repented in a day. And I've been nagging you for years, centuries, and you won't repent. You've been ignoring me. Now, that had cut, wouldn't it? So that's a couple of examples of allegory where there's a deeper spiritual meaning to be found. But you can understand, can't you, that if we all treated all of Scripture uh, or, or, or much of Scripture as an allegory, where would we end up? What, what kind of ideas could we read into it? We'd be able to make the Scriptures say whatever we wanted to so why is it okay to see allegory, the deeper meaning behind the story in some scriptures, but not as a general rule? Well, in both those examples that I just gave, the, the allegory backs up what the scriptures had already very clearly said in their own right, right? So Paul was already very clearly making his case from Scripture. And then he adds in this allegory to go in beside it. In the case of Jonah, the books of the prophets have already very clearly been calling Israel to repent, and they ignored it. It's already very clear in Scripture. And then the allegory of Jonah is put in alongside it. What we cannot do and what we should not ever do is to come up with our own idea that scripture doesn't really agree with and then find some kind of story that we can treat as an allegory to back up our idea to prove our case. So, how should we read the Bible? Well, in most cases, the best way to understand the scriptures is simply by what's most, most, what it most clearly says. Um, in a, a consistent message throughout both the Old and New Testaments. Now, let me just share a few rules that I use when I'm studying God's word. Firstly, and I think most importantly, is to let what the scriptures say shape my understanding of God instead of letting my understanding of God shape what the scriptures say. Right? That the academic way of saying this is to use exegesis instead of eisegesis. 
Um, let me explain. The first thing that we have to understand, and, and probably we have to admit to ourselves, is we all have preconceived ideas of what we believe about God. And whenever we read the Bible, without even thinking about it, we tend to filter what we read through the lens of, of what we already believe, right? So it might be stuff that we've been taught. It might be the theology of the denomination that I'm in. It might be the prevailing popular belief of the day. Or it might simply be something that I just desperately want to believe and desperately want to be true. And with these thoughts and, and these preconceived ideas, we tend to inject our own ideas and our own meanings into the passage. Uh, this is what's called eisegesis, where we're putting our own meaning into the passage. Now, can you, can you come to the place where you know that all of us, myself, I know I am in this position, that what I already know about God is surely going to colour what I read in the Scriptures. What we should understand is that the Scriptures should be informing what we understand of God. Now, of course, if, if we read our own meaning into the Scriptures, that's not a good thing. The, the best way to read and to understand the scriptures. And the only way to really do it with integrity is what's called exegesis. Ex meaning out of, we get our understanding out of the scriptures instead of projecting our meaning into the scriptures. All right, so you with me? Okay. Now, over these, I'm going to give a few examples um, and I don't want to offend anybody. And I want you to understand that um, most, most of these examples I consider um, are held by good um, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, this does not mean that I'm, I'm criticising them or their denomination. Um, it's just different understandings that we have, okay? Right, so a Calvinist, so a Calvinist denomination, I'd say you'd think of Presbyterians, um, that, that's probably the main one, but there are others as well. Uh, Calvinists have five principles that they've been taught, and they believe that these are really important and they're not negotiables and you need to believe these things, all right? So one of those principles is the notion of once saved, always saved. Um, so I... I I'd actually say it's a bit different to what I would call eternal security, although that's, that's sort of blurring the lines a bit. So I would say eternal security means no one can take my salvation away from me. But once saved, always saved really says that once you give your heart to God, even if you decide you don't want to follow Jesus anymore and you want to become a Satanist or something, you can't. Tough, tough bickies, once you're saved, you're saved. You can't, that salvation can't be undone even if you hate God. Um, and so when a Calvinist reads a passage where, to me, it might seem pretty obvious that in this point we're being urged to keep on in your faith, keep on in your faith. And, and if you don't lose your faith, then, you know, there's going to be severe consequences for that and it sounds like hell to me. Um, well, a Calvinist won't even consider that. And I've heard a Bible teacher say, well, 
it sounds like it's saying this, but it can't be saying that because we know that a person can't ever lose their salvation, so it must be meaning something else. And then they proceed to come up with an explanation that really doesn't sound like scripture. Here's a second example. Some people believe in prosperity theology, right? So God wants you to be healthy. God wants you to be wealthy. And if you're a Christian, you'll never be sick or poor. And so when they read the scriptures, um, where God may be speaking of spiritual blessings and, and eternal blessings of, of the resurrection in Christ and what life's going to be like that, well, they interpret it through the lens of what they believe, that we get these physical blessings now and they turn it into immediate physical blessings. Right? So, for example, John 10 verse 10 says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And if you believe in the prosperity gospel, you'll filter that through the lens of current material blessings. And that's what you'll believe. And an abundant life gets equated to physical worldly blessings, which is a pretty bad way and shallow way of understanding what the gospel is about. Surely the abundant life is that we are made spiritually alive in Christ and we receive eternal life. So it's really important that we recognise this, that we recognise the temptation to filter the scriptures through the lens of what we believe. Um, in my own experience, um, something I've found is is the way that the scriptures seem to continually challenge my underlying assumptions about God. And, and the joy I feel when, when I, I read and, and, and encounter the God who reveals himself in the scriptures more so than, than the way someone else has taught me and planted an idea in my head of what we think God should be like. A second rule I use is never study one verse on its own. Um, never even study just a paragraph on its own. I like to read at least a chapter or two before it and at least a chapter or two after it. Better still if you can read the whole book of the Bible um, and see what it's, what it's saying. There's an old saying that says, a text taken out of context is a pretext. A few weeks ago, Robin and I attended a church in another town and the preacher in that church told us that to be good spirit-filled Christians, we all had to speak in tongues. And he quoted half of, of my verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 4, which says, the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself or builds up himself. And so he said, just quoted that half a verse, and, and then he went on and said, this is a really good thing. And he said, surely you want to be being built up in Christ. Surely we should all want to build ourselves up in Christ. Who doesn't want to be built up in Christ? And so therefore, this verse is telling us we all have to speak in tongues. But what's the remainder of that verse say? 
The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, why is that important? Why is that important? What difference does that make? Well, we still don't know what difference it makes until we read the whole section. Because in this section of 1 Corinthians, the actual message is we don't all have the same spiritual gifts. Some people will have one gift, others will have another gift, and we shouldn't be trying to expect everybody to have the same gift. And then together, with all of us, with all of our different gifts, together we form one united body. And if any of those gifts are missing, then it's like, a, like you're missing a finger, or like you're missing a toe, or like you're missing an eye. And the purpose of the spiritual gifts, it tells us, is not to build ourselves up, but to build up the church. Therefore, the gift of tongues, Paul is telling us, is the least of the gifts. And he's saying, seek first the gifts that are going to build up the church. You see, by taking half a verse completely out of its context, that preacher gave the exact opposite message to what the Bible is saying. But there's other ways to take, take a verse out of context as well. It's if we take it out of its historical context. We need to ask the question, what did this passage mean to the original hearers? And how do I apply it today? Right, so we're talking about understanding the historical context. So for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there's a passage about how when women pray and prophesy, they should have their heads covered. And, and that's the reason that, that some women wear hats when they go to church or, or some kind of head covering when they go to church. Um, I noticed that not many of you are today. Why not? Why do we, in some churches, wear a head covering and in other churches not? Well, it's because we understand in the context of the whole passage and in the context of what we learn, what we know about their culture, it's not actually about headwear. It's about how through traditions we honour and submit to those who have authority over us. All right, so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2, it says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, in our culture, to honour their husband and as a sign of their marriage to their husband, does a married woman still wear a head covering? No, but, but in their culture, that was what it meant. In their culture, it was a sign that they were honouring a husband. It was a sign that of their marriage to their husband. But it's not a sign in our culture. 
What's the sign in our culture? A wedding ring? That's a start. A question that Robin and I nearly always get asked um, when, we're, when I'm conducting a wedding and Robin's there helping out with the wedding practice because she knows stuff, um, is when it comes to the signing of the register, the bride wants to know, do I sign my maiden name or do I sign my married name? And at the signing of the marriage register, that's pretty much the last time that woman will sign her maiden name. However, some women choose to keep their maiden name or they choose to take on a hyphenated name. And I've never had to do this. And you might think that I'm harsh for saying this, but I've already decided that if a bride chooses not to take her husband's surname, I will refuse to marry them. Why? It's because they're still wanting to remain separate. Um, and they're, they're refusing to submit to one another. Right? It, it's not about headwear. It's about how wives, in the traditions of their culture, submit to their husbands. And it's about how men submit to Christ. Right? So for me, there is a head covering thing. Um, if I'm outside and got a hat on, if it, if it comes to prayer, I take my hat off. Why? It's a sign of my submission to Christ. Um, right, so you're with me? It, it's a cultural context. It's not about wearing a hat. It's about submitting to one another. Now, having said that, is there anything wrong with wearing a hat? No. If God has convicted you that this is the way that you are to honour him and to honour your husband by wearing a head covering in church, do so. The fourth rule I apply is scripture helps to interpret scripture. We use clear passages of scripture to help us to understand unclear passages. And we had an example of that today. Uh, Paul had already made a very clear case from scripture uh, that was very easy to understand and then he gives this out-of-the-box allegorical interpretation, uh, but his interpretation was based on other scripture. Let me give you a New Testament example. In John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born again? That's what Nicodemus wanted to know. Now, of course, we who have been, most of us here have been in church for years. We know well and truly what it means to be born again. But from what Jesus just said there, could we possibly know? Could Nicodemus possibly know what that meant? No, he didn't. That's why he asked to explain it. And Jesus goes on, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, the end is still not there. What does it mean to be born of water and of spirit? What, what does that mean? It's as clear as mud. Right? He, he said this, but if we just took that on its own, we still wouldn't know what it means. So, but we know what it means, don't we? Don't we? I hope so. 
Put up your hand if you don't know what it means to be born again, and we'll have a very serious discussion after church. Whew. Glad no hands went up. Um, right, so when we start digging into some of Paul's letters, we realise what this is all about. Baptism is dying with Christ and then being raised again with Christ. And then we can get into Peter's, Peter's letters. Peter's first letter, he talks about how we are born again to a living hope through somebody special. Who's that special person? Through the resurrection of Christ. Now, these are clear scriptures that then help us to understand the unclear scriptures. All right, so that's, that's four simple rules I stick to. But I want to encourage you. Um, I used a few big words today. I usually try not to use big words. I used a few big words today. Um, I want to encourage you, don't ever be put off thinking, oh, I can't possibly understand this. You need to be some kind of academic to read and understand the Bible. Let me tell you, most ordinary, everyday Christians have a far better understanding than most academics. Um, if we love Jesus, we're going to love reading his word. If we want God to be transforming us, and if we want God to be making us more and more like his sons, like his son, we're not going to twist the scriptures to try and make them say what they're not saying. We're not going to twist the scriptures so it'll make us feel comfortable as we are. If we truly love God, we're going to want to be transformed to become more and more like his son. So we won't be focused on worldly stuff. We'll let the word of God challenge us and transform us. And in this, we come to know him better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself in your written word. And Lord, we pray that you would always help us to study your word with integrity, that we would submit ourselves to you completely, to be shaped and formed by you and by your word. By your Holy Spirit, grant us understanding, give us knowledge, help us to know you, in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.